What is going on, everybody? Thank you so much for joining yours truly, Ryan Caligari, on this week's episode of the Cut the Crap Show, where every single week I'm reading a book, condensing that book down to its core golden nuggets. I'm bringing the author of that book onto the show. We have a conversation about the golden nuggets, and I'm here with you every single week, just trying to save you a little bit of time and bring you some information that can spark real change in your life. Now, before we kick into this thing, I just got to ask you all for a very quick favor. If you're listening to this on your iPhone, your iPad, your iTunes, whatever, do me a quick favor. Apple's made it very easy to rate and review the show. All you have to do is just hit the show, scroll up a little bit, and you'll see there's one to five stars. If you could do me a really big favor, hit that five-star button, and it'll submit your entry. That's it. You want to rate and review the show? Just hit that five-star button, and we will be done. Nice and easy. And it means a lot to me because, obviously, it helps the show. And, of course, it just means a lot to me that we get your support. So if you can do that for me, I'd greatly appreciate that. Thank you so much in advance. All right, so what are we talking about this week? We're talking to Ben Parr about his book, Captivology, The Science of Capturing People's Attention. Now, I've mentioned before that I'm really starting to get into books about the mind. Books that help us understand how the mind works. Books about happiness, about creating a positive mental attitude. Because that, to me, that's everything. If you don't have that, it doesn't matter what sales script you put in place. It doesn't matter what marketing strategy you put in place. If you have a mindset that's steeped in learned helplessness, it doesn't matter what tactic you put in place. You're going to lose anyways. So I feel like before we can talk about sales and marketing, you got to understand the mind. And it's funny because we don't understand the mind at all. And yet we don't talk about it that much. So if I can start to create more of a dialogue around that, then that's what I'm going to do. And that's what I think the show is going to evolve to become. But I love books like this where we're talking about how to capture people's attention because every single one of us are trying to capture attention. Right? It's not just reserved for marketers and salespeople. No, it's reserved for the person sitting at the dinner table who's trying to attract attention of the room. This is to you as a parent trying to attract attention of your children so they pay attention to you. If you're in the dating scene right now and you're trying to attract attention of a particular person, you have to be good at attracting attention. So how do we do that? Well, I want to know the answer to that question, and I'm sure you do as well. So that's what we have Ben on the show today. So I'm very excited to crack into this one with Ben. So as I talked to Ben, I had to get an understanding in terms of who he was, because he comes with a very interesting background. Hello, my name is Ben. I like long walks on the beach, <laughs> candlelit dinners. That's awesome. Oh, uh, not a dating, not a dating podcast. Sorry about that, everyone. <laughs> it's all right. It's all right. <laughs> so, so my original claim to fame is uh, as the co-editor and editor at large of Mashable, the technology news website. And so, from 2008 to 2012, I was the co-editor. I ran the West Coast. I opened the West Coast office. I wrote. 2,446 articles in my three and a half years at Mashable. Wow. So I covered everything from, you know, the rise of Facebook to uh, major launches at everything from Google and beyond. Uh, interviewed some of the, like, greatest entrepreneurs uh, of our time. And I did that for four years before leaving and starting an early stage venture firm, investing in a couple early stage companies, uh, joining a couple of boards. I joined like the Lufthansa Advisory Board, and then I wrote the book. Nice. And so I wrote the book in part because I was working with all these entrepreneurs, and they were always asking me the same questions. What, what should I do for press, marketing, customer user acquisition, and virality? And I really wanted to take that like 
deeper dive into understanding how I could help them. And that led down this rabbit hole of attention. And I have had book offers over the years, but it was the first time I really found a subject that mm. I thought was critically important. But And there was a lot of research, but no one had really encapsulated it into the public mind and really understanding like, what does this research actually mean to my business, to my career, to my identity, to to my classroom, whatever it might be. Mm -hmm. Because attention is the fundamental currency of the modern economy. Mm -hmm. And if you're not able to capture attention, then you have like many different kinds of problems. You're not able to succeed in the current market. Now, I don't have any hard data to back this up, but I feel, my intuition tells me that today, it's harder to attract attention than it has ever been before in the history of our world. Because today I feel like we are so interconnected. We're so connected to each other from a one-to-one -one perspective that for somebody to break through and actually gain attention, it's really hard to do that. Because there's so many people, so many things, so many pieces of content fighting for your attention. This show, for example, that's why I always thank you at the very end of the show. Thank you for your attention. You know I do that. Because you have so many choices. You could choose to listen to a podcast or not. You could choose to listen to this show or another show. But you choose to stick with me. Why do you do that? So we always ask that question. How do I attract attention? And yes, we talk about that. But for some reason, I feel like it's more difficult today than it has ever been before. So I had to ask Ben to talk a little bit more about that to see if that's actually accurate. So attention is split. And it's split more than ever. We have taken up a lot of habits that are just not conducive to the way in which we as humans pay attention. We are splitting our time and our energy between different devices, different thoughts, and there's more information uh, compounding our attention than ever, right? Uh, the amount of information that has been exposed to us has grown exponentially. Uh, the average human is probably is being exposed to you know seven seventy DVDs worth of information a day or more, Oof. and how do you like manage that kind of thing? It's it was not the same a few even a few years ago, and so especially as an examples like you are trying to get the attention of students who are born into this world. You're trying to get the attention of potential customers who have lots of other people emailing them. You're trying to get the attention of agents and of fans, and you're trying to build a career as an entertainer. All, attention is, like, and understanding how it works and understanding how to capture it is just absolutely critical. I think there was this kind of feeling that, uh, you know, it's that like, just let your work show for itself. It's not really the way the world works anymore. You have to find a way to showcase it for people to notice it in the first place. All right, let's kick into this thing with golden nugget number one, which talks about the different types of attention. There's different types of attention in that we have short-term attention and long-term attention. How does somebody capture attention in that instant right now and hold it for a few seconds? But then how do other people retain someone's attention? For example, some of you have been listening to the show for three years from episode number one, before we understand the science of attention, we need to understand the different types of attention. When I did my research for Captivology, I went through 300 years of scientific research and attention and memory, and I interviewed over 100 people. Uh, a lot of those people were PhDs and leading researchers in the areas of attention, memory, and different aspects of psychology. And it, seemed, it became very clear that uh, 
there is a three-stage model for attention, and we don't think of it enough that way. Typically, people think of attention as an on-off switch. I'm paying attention. I'm not paying attention. But that's not how the world works. We pay attention in three stages. And so you talked about the analogy of a bonfire that I often give, mm -hmm. where when you're starting a bonfire, you put the kindling down and you like start the small little bit. And then you try like the ignition even before that you have the ignition and that like first spark. And then you try to get the kindling. You try to get the little stuff going and then you build the bonfire. You build the big fire that lasts all night. And so in my three stages of attention, I talk about uh, immediate attention, short attention and long attention. So immediate attention is the ignition, the spark that like on off switch immediate attention is I'm paying attention to the subconscious level. It's when you turn your head, when you hear a gunshot or something like that. Hmm. Short attention is our short-term attention span, short-term memory. That is the kindling. That is when we're focused on, say, a TV show or we're focused on a short video. And then there's long attention, which doesn't get paid enough well attention, which hmm. is the bonfire in my example and the logs. And that is the difference between you going out and trying to have to bang on doors and people coming to you. Long-term interest, a deep relationship. It's the difference between uh, you launching your product, trying to get press, and Apple just saying, here's a new product, and millions of people lining up across the world in order to get it. Mm -hmm. That's the three stages. You have to work your way up across those stages uh, over time, and you need to go from immediate to short to long attention. There's no way around that. Mm -hmm. But as you build up that bonfire of attention, suddenly you find that rather than you having to go out everywhere, everyone's coming to you. Now, I love the way that Ben describes that. Short-term attention. It's like the ignition, right? The spark. If somebody hears a gunshot or they hear a car backfire or they see fireworks, they have their attention for a split second, maybe a few seconds. And then we have kindling. That kindling is something that's going to attract attention for half an hour, maybe an hour, a show, a movie, for example, a presentation, a speech. But then we have the bonfire. People trust you. And because of that, you have been able to sustain their attention long enough. You see this all the time with certain speakers, certain authors, for example, certain people who host shows, myself, for example. So many of you have subscribed from episode one to now. We've built a bonfire. I still put out ignition out there. I still put out the little kindling because I have to continue building those relationships and tr attracting people. My social media posts, that acts as an ignition, something just to capture attention just for a split second. And once I have their attention, now I have to continue to build that attention. So I build that attention with an episode, half an hour episode, I've got their attention. But what's really important here is that bonfire. It's that long-term relationship where people know me, like me, and trust me. As they continue to listen to the show over long periods of time, then we've built that bonfire. I love that. Ignition, kindling, bonfire. That kind of imagery helps to make sense out of this whole thing. And that should be the goal of all marketers. That should be the goal of people building relationships. That's the goal of somebody dating. You're trying to attract attention. You're just trying to get a date. And then maybe you want a long-term relationship. We see this all over the place. But I had to ask Ben a question about building a bonfire. Because building a bonfire takes time. It takes persistence. It takes patience. So what's a piece of advice that he can give to somebody who just started their ignition point and they want to build a bonfire? What kind of advice do you give that person? I got hundreds of 
uh, pieces of advice on this one, but I'll pick one to start. So <laughs> I'm going to actually use an example from myself. So uh, nowadays, after the book, I started a venture-backed company called Octane AI. We're like we're chatbots and messaging for the world of e-commerce. So kind of think the things that stores and merchants did over email, but for this channel that more and more people are using every day, conversation messaging, things like Facebook Messenger and SMS. And for us, when we first started, we were very broadly focused. We would just help any business. But by doing that, we weren't nobody really got the message. And so we became experts and we really focused in on one vertical where our software would have the most impact and really drive revenue and we could be real experts at. Mm -hmm. For us, that was the e-commerce and especially the Shopify ecosystem. And we became super experts in that space. And as a result of that, we've been growing really, really fast and gaining a lot of attention. So I see a lot of times people make this mistake too, where they try to uh, appeal to everyone and try to have something very broad and try to be known as like just marketing. Get known for a very specific thing. Become an expert at a vertical of a vertical. Become not an expert at, say, sales, but at a specific type of mm -hmm. sales. Maybe it's inside sales for the world of e-commerce or for some specific vertical. The more you can focus on expertise, the like more of an expert you can become, the more you can be known, and then you can expand from there. But start super narrow and then grow because that's going to make you much more of an expert. One of the triggers in my book is about becoming an expert in the area that you're talking about. People naturally pay attention to experts, mm -hmm. but you can't become an expert at everything. You got to be an expert at one vertical of a vertical. Now, that's a great piece of information that I truly, truly believe in. When I first started out my career, I thought bigger was better, baby. I thought it was just, you know, I'm a sales and marketing guy and I can do it all. I'll tell you this much. If you try to do it all, you're going to be pretty bad at sales and marketing. So I had to specialize. I had to figure out what within sales and marketing I could be really, really good at. But then from there, it was, well, I'm really good at solving problems for a specific type of customer in a specific type of industry. And once you get down to a very specific niche within a very specific market, that's when people really start to pay attention because your message becomes very succinct, very focused, and very relevant. And so it's hard to ignore your message. That's such a powerful piece of advice that Ben shared with us. Truly love that. So now let's kick into golden nugget number two, which actually starts us off on the very first of the seven captivation triggers. And this trigger, it's called the automaticity trigger. So the automaticity trigger is the fact that certain sights, sounds, symbols, and sensory cues capture our attention at an automatic and subconscious level. And so at the very beginning, immediate attention, what is the kind of thing that's going to automatically trigger our attention? And so oftentimes we don't think about just certain little things can have a really powerful priming effect mm. upon our psychology. And it's a scientific it's a scientific phenomenon. So as an example, uh, a French researcher found that like, by just having people wear the color red, they were far more likely to be picked up than almost any other color. Uh, not just because it, sta it both stands out from its surroundings – so that it has a high contrast at a visual level, mm -hmm. but also there's this association with red and romanticism or red and danger. And so we pay more attention to red in a lot of situations than others. Same reason, for example, why Amazon's buy buttons are yellow and orange. They stand out very highly from other colors on 
multiple screens and they've tested that really detailedly and works really well. But like there's also just like an immediate thing and an immediate symbol that makes you remember something. And so like I talk about in the book something, the heart bleed bug, which was a couple years ago that got a lot of attention purely because of the symbol itself, this red bleeding heart that you could remember and you could remember it really, really clearly. I was actually uh, uh, watching something this morning about how renaming certain animal species will actually have a major impact on how much money people give to conserve them. Wow. So there was the like humpback dolphins of Hong Kong and not a lot of people were paying attention to it. Then they renamed it like the Hong Kong pink dolphin, huh. which it is a different cue. And that dramatically increased the amount of donations to the cause of conservation hmm. because it created a sense of identity, because it was visually in interesting, because it stood out. But this is super important to think about what is the impact from a association and from a contrast standpoint mm -hmm. of any symbol of anything that I put out there. Now, the automaticity trigger is something that we use quite often in marketing. You look at certain colors, certain shapes, certain sounds, and you can use those to your advantage to attract attention, to ignite someone to take action, to just capture their attention for a split second where they say, wow, that stands out. But this idea of actually capturing someone's attention by standing out, we need to understand two things. We need to understand contrast and we need to understand association. So it, it really comes down to understand the contrast that a certain sensory symbol has and then understand the associations that it has with your target audience. Mm. So the contrast is purely like loud sound in a quiet room or specific color across a different color scheme. And there's different tools that can help you do that. And that's a very basic one. Like our eyes do naturally just go towards certain colors in certain situations. Mm. Now, the other piece of that is the more complex part. That is the uh associations that we have with these different symbols and colors mm -hmm. and so as like an example uh using the color green and packaging works can work well in a country like the u.s but doesn't work well in other countries because it symbolizes death as an mm -hmm. example or funerals and so you have to really understand that audience and lots of companies big and small have made this mistake of being like like one company i talk about used a perfume uh, uh, based on a flower that is used often at funerals in South America. And of course that like, uh, <laughs> that perfume did not succeed in any kind of, of way. Wow. So you got like really understand what is the, what is the symbolism to the target audience from a color perspective, from a visual symbol perspective, from other perspectives. And then what is the actual audience? What are their biases? And like use that research to really connect the two. Another great takeaway. If you're looking to attract attention, you have to look for things that contrast. So maybe something bright in a dark area or something loud in a quiet space. You have to look for those points of contrast. But at the same time, you might go in another direction by finding things that associate to a certain group, things that resonate very well with a certain group that'll stand out to them in particular. If you're looking for that at point of ignition, those are two great takeaways. But now we move on to golden nugget number three, which is the framing trigger. And the framing trigger, it captures people's concerns and it shows them that your message fits with their values. So the framing trigger is about the fact that things that fall within our frame of reference, we pay much more attention to and things we outside of it, we don't pay attention to. 
Um, and this is really true, especially of politics. And we've seen very clear examples of this mm-hmm. in the last few years. If I tell you something about your existing worldview, you're more likely to pay attention to it, confirm it, and you're far more likely to ignore it if not. And this is true of gun control, climate change, even for some example, flat earthers. Mm. And, and like you just pay attention to certain things because of your past history, because of your culture, because of other biases. Um, but there are certain ways in which to uh, not control the framing trigger, but to either move it towards the direction you're trying to move it to. So you can either find a way to fall within their frame of reference or find a way to reframe that conversation. And so I talk a lot in the book, and you can read this uh, in detail about Odor Ono, which is uh, one of the original antiperspirants, and I talk about how they were able to go from nothing to one of the most popular antiperspirants and make antiperspirant a thing. So for Odor Ono, it was founded by a very young teenager, Edna Murphy. She borrowed some money from her grandfather, Mm -hmm. and she launched her antiperspirant brand, but it didn't start taking off in the beginning. Like, it got a little bit of traction. Mm -hmm. Then she partnered with... uh, with uh, James Webb Young, who is a copywriter at J. Walter Thompson, you know he's probably best known now for being one of the like uh, first chairman of the Ad Council. Um, and so what happened with him when with their partnership was like the first thing was like they realized that it wasn't selling because people didn't want to talk about antiperspirant or body odor, and people thought that antiperspirant was going to kill them and like keep bad fluids in them and all that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So they tackled the first thing because this antiperspirant was developed by a doctor because he was using it to make sure that his hands didn't sweat when he was doing surgeries. And so as a result of that, um, they advertised hard that fact that it was developed by a doctor and recommended by doctors that made a real shift in its sales. But then the big thing that they did was they put out an ad in uh, one of the most popular magazines of the time, uh, Ladies Home Journal, mm-hmm. and it was basically straying up, straight up saying like, body odor's a thing, you don't have to be embarrassed by it, there's a solution, odor oh no. Hmm. And the crazy thing was that hundreds of women canceled their subscriptions. This was controversial for the time, which is crazy to think about. But it was super controversial for mm-hmm. the time, but it did address a direct concern, and now no long, the, the framing of it's not okay to talk about it was gone. Now it was okay to talk about it. Now people would talk about it. And as a result, the frame of reference changed. Now that you could talk about it, now you could advertise it, now you could really drive sales. Now suddenly Odor Ono was the center of this conversation. Awesome. Now the framing trigger is an interesting one because you can play it two different ways. The first way is to align your message with what your audience believes. Give them more of what they want. It fits their frame, so they're going to pay attention to it. So whatever your audience believes in, whatever ideology, philosophy, whatever shows they watch, whatever drinks they drink, whatever it is they believe in, they love, they know, like, trust, you can create a message and fall in line with that because they'll pay attention to it. Now, the other way, reframing. So in this case, you might want to flank the beliefs that other people have by providing a different perspective. I'm going to give you an example. Bone broth. A lot of people love bone broth. Very passionate about it. They love drinking it. It's healthy for them. Or so they think. And so right now, there's some research out there that's saying bone broth isn't exactly as healthy as you might think. And so what they're doing, certain scientists, is they're pushing a message forward into communities that believe strongly in the benefits of bone broth. And by doing that, you are going to gain a lot of attention. 
Now, for the scientists, it might bring them some negative attention because people love it and they believe in it. They believe so strongly. So you have to come with more data. You have to come with more research to help back up your points, to help prove the validity of your message. So framing and reframing, two different ways of attracting attention for your message. I love that one. And now moving on to the next golden nugget, golden nugget number four. And it actually plays really well with the last piece we were talking about with flanking. We're talking the disruption trigger. And what this trigger does really well is it flips people's expectations. This one is pretty straightforward in some ways and complex in others. It is just that we pay attention to the things that violate our expectations of how the world should work. So, for example, if you and I are sitting at a coffee shop and a group of of clowns juggling just walked into the coffee shop, <laughs> we're going to pay attention because that violates our expectations of the world. The reason why we pay attention is because of the like fight or flight response. We have to understand, is this a threat or is this food? We are designed at a psychological level to pay attention to out-of-place items because that's usually what the threat is or where a threat comes from. And so you have to really find a way to uh, – when you try to use this trigger, find a way to add surprise in that communication that you're giving. You have to find a way to keep it really simple, like a clear message, and you have to make it really meaningful and significant to the mess- to the, like the end person or the end user. Mm-hmm. And so I talk about some examples that work really well and examples that don't. Mm-hmm. One that works really well. Patagonia. They did this campaign saying, don't buy our jacket. Disrupt your expectations of what a clothing brand should do. But then they explain why they say that because they were talking about how to save water and that they would repair your jacket for you and that this was – they're an environmental company. So it was significant to their values. By telling people not to buy their jacket, people bought a ton more of their jackets. And like their sales went up as a result of the campaign. Hmm. On the other hand, I talk about – I talk about Quiznos and they have this just awful, awful ad uh, where they have like a creepy monster dancing around your food saying like like singing an off key. And it's like you don't want to wrote it near your food. That doesn't like it, that's surprising, but it's not significant to the value. So it didn't help their sales at all. They went bankrupt. If you're going to use the disruption trigger, you have to keep three things in mind. Your disruption, it needs to surprise. It needs to be simple and it needs to be significant. And why? Well, if you're trying to disrupt somebody's pattern, it has to first off surprise them. But the surprise, it has to please them. You can't surprise them with something that makes them angry or that upsets them because it's going to work against you. You have to make sure it's simple because if it's not simple, they're not going to spend time trying to figure it out. If it's too confusing, they're just going to pass by it. So, for example, when someone's trying to use the disruption trigger in email, they'll use a disruptive subject line. But then you get into the email and it's just paragraph after paragraph. It's not simple enough. It's too complicated. I'm out. And it has to be significant. Disruptions that aren't significant, and especially if they're not consistent with an audience's values, it always leads to trouble and it distracts from the message that you're trying to deliver. Remember that. Simple, significant, and surprise. Very important. And there's one point here I want to talk about. It's called cognitive load. And cognitive load is very important because if you're trying to disrupt someone and you are missing out on the simplicity piece of this, you're never going to get anywhere. So I talk – there's a lot of psychological discussion in the book. And so one thing I do talk about a lot is how – Uh, our brain handles and processes information. The cognitive load is essentially that, especially as you go throughout the day, more information is being presented to you. This wave of information 
information, especially when you have to make decisions. Uh, you eventually have decision fatigue, your cognitive load increases, and then you are you have less attention to spread around to things and you have less ability to pay attention. And so if you are I if your message is uh, too complex, it can increase cognitive load. And if you're targeting people when they are at their most like uh, attention, uh, disrupted. Mm -hmm. They are looking at three things. They've been making lots of decisions all day. Cognitive load plays a factor as well. There's a study they found that uh, judges tend to make the most sound judgments or at least uh, make judgments where they uh, forgive or like lighter sentences right at the beginning of the day or right after lunch when their cognitive load is like decreased and their like uh, attention fatigue is decreased and it's highest right at the end of the day. So literally if you're if any of you are about to get sentenced for prison, <laughs> make sure you get the earliest slot in the day possible. I am not kidding. That will actually work. You may thank me, I guess, later. Let's just hope that piece of advice never applies to you and you never have to use that. <laughs> Moving on to golden nugget number five. Now we're talking about the reward trigger. Now I love this trigger because it talks all about the brain, it talks about neurotransmitters, dopamine levels, all that stuff that I love. In the, I talk about the human reward system, which we think we know, but we really don't, which is that uh, we are really, really triggered to go and seek rewards, right? Mm -hmm. But uh, rewards, um, and the dopamine system that powers them. So here's the thing, dopamine. We think of it as this thing that creates pleasure in the brain. That's not really true. What it actually creates is a wanting response, a desire for something. This was part of research done at the University of Michigan. And so what actually captures our attention is the wanting response that comes from dopamine, not the actual opioids that create pleasure once you've actually achieved their reward. So I talk about two main types of rewards, extrinsic and intrinsic rewards. And these kinds of rewards, uh, extrinsic are like very, very tangible. They're very short term. They're like food, money, sex. I talk about six different ways in which uh, extrinsic rewards can be given. And then intrinsic rewards are like longer term kinds of rewards, long attention rewards, uh, the bonfire rewards. Mm -hmm. They are things like uh, feelings, autonomy, the feeling of mastery, the feeling of like you have a purpose in life, things like that. And you need to use both in order to really capture attention completely because, for example, if you are applying for a job um, or you're th deciding on a job it, or you want to stay at a job, you need to have both like the feeling of like there's a purpose to my job or I'm mastering something, the intrinsic reward. But you also need the extrinsic reward. Am I getting paid for what I'm doing? Am I getting a bonus? Mm -hmm. Am I getting rewarded and felt loyal by gifts and things like that? You must do both as an employer to capture attention. Now, there's a good takeaway. Utilizing the reward trigger in both extrinsic and intrinsic rewards, very valuable. Both rewards have some value in the right context. For example, you might want to use an extrinsic reward if you're trying to gain attention by trying to get somebody to attend your conference, trying to get somebody to attend your speech. If you are trying to get donations, for example, you might have the prospects of winning a grand prize. And the greater that extrinsic reward, the greater attention you're going to receive. The challenge with that, though, is that once somebody actually receives that intrinsic reward, they stop paying attention altogether. So that's the downside. It's great if you're trying to achieve some short-term objective, but not great in the long term. In the long term, though, the intrinsic rewards, like mastery, autonomy, purpose, um, helping people achieve a state of well-being, satisfaction, they're getting pleasure out of connecting with you, 
that actually feeds people's bonfires and offers long-term immersive value. So just like Ben said, both of them have a role and you should definitely make use of both of them, but in the right context. Moving on to the next golden nugget, we're talking about the next trigger, which I love. This one is the reputation trigger. The reason why I like this one is because the reputation trigger, it inspires others to believe your message. And if people don't believe your message, then you really got nowhere to go. So this is a really important one for you to understand. So the reputation trigger is the fact that we pay attention to reputable sources of information. And those divide into three categories, experts, Mm -hmm. authorities, and the crowd. Mm -hmm. Uh, Experts are by far the most powerful. This is like, I believe in this expert and their claims. I trust this person. Uh, I trust this authority. I trust this like expert because they are knowledgeable and we are built as a society to trust the knowledge of others. Um, second one is authority. And so like an authority figure who can punish you for not paying attention in some kind of way, like a boss. And then crowds, which in its own way uh, acts like an expert through social proofing and proves that like as an example, when you're trying to pick a restaurant – where to go in a new city, you look at Yelp, and that's because you trust the rating system of hundreds of people together. Mm-hmm. And that takes us like a big thing in terms of like, like the power of the reputation trigger. Just by attaching a certain person's name to something can have a dramatic impact mm-hmm. on the sales. This is why like uh, endorsement deals work. This is why a book like uh, J.K. Rowling's like uh, book, The Cuckoo's Calling, like sold a lot more as mm-hmm. soon as they announced like she, or as a leak that she was the author. That's right. Like, Crazy, like, just a name can do that. That's the power of the reputation trigger. Now, in my career, I've made a point of really focusing on this aspect, your reputation. Because I've worked with tons of companies who've invested in marketing systems, sales systems, social media this, and SEO this, and blog posts that. And none of it, none of it has any intention of building anyone's reputation in the organization. And I think it's such a waste of money. To me, thought leadership key opinion leaders, that kind of stuff. That is so important to an organization. I don't care if you're a company, a small business, a freelancer, an entrepreneur, somebody who's just trying to get their initiative out there, somebody who's pushing a worthy cause. I don't care what it is. You have to build a reputation around what it is you stand for. And far too many of us aren't putting enough attention on reputations, especially businesses. It's a huge misstep by a ton of companies. And something that I personally have worked with a lot of companies on. Some companies get it, some don't. Those that don't, I feel bad for them. Because they continue to struggle and churn and work so hard, pounding on doors. You know, well, we, it's a numbers game. We just got to keep picking up the phone, dialing for dollars. Out of every hundred phone calls we make, we're going to get a deal out of it. Man, there's just a smarter way to do it. So I had to dig deeper with Ben on this one. And we kind of talked about this before as well. Talking about becoming a niche within your niche. So I had to dig into it a little bit deeper with him. We actually did discuss this a little bit, which is uh, becoming an expert in a niche of a niche. And so this is like you're creating your blog, you're creating your other content. The more content you create around one specific subject and you keep it focused, mm-hmm. the quicker you will be recognized as an expert. And by doing that, not only are you getting like creating a podcast or whatever, but your resume becomes stronger because suddenly when people are looking to hire you as a consultant or as a full-time hire – when you are known as an expert in that area or vertical through the content you've created and the work you've done, you are by far not only going to get hired, but like be able to demand more because fewer people right. have that expertise in that niche of a niche. Lots of people are quote unquote experts at marketing, 
very few are experts on, say, uh, Facebook Messenger bot marketing mm. or or e-commerce Messenger bot marketing. That sub vertical, and you're like, you're in that sub vertical. You need that expert. Like, there's very few of those people. You can win that. Again, this, to me, one of the most important elements in the book, building a strong reputation around your expertise, around a specific niche. It's so critical. And if you're not thinking about that, why the hell not? You got to start thinking about that. Because I'm telling you, you'll become more valuable and you will become almost irreplaceable in your industry if you are able to build a reputation on a specific niche, within a niche. I love that takeaway. Moving on to the next golden nugget, we have two triggers left. This one... We're talking about the mystery trigger. What the heck is the mystery trigger all about? So this is getting into the longer stages of attention. How do you capture attention uh, over the long term, the long attention, the bonfire? Mm -hmm. Because some of the triggers we talked about before are immediate and short attention triggers, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Automaticity is for sure uh, about catching immediate attention. And disruption is for sure about catching short attention. Mm -hmm. Now, mystery trigger, that is about long attention. And this is the fact that we pay attention to uh, storylines that have uncertainty, that have suspense, that have this mystery element because we want to know how the thing will end. We want to have uh, a conclusion. And there's kind of two psychological effects that I talk about that to attribute to this. Mm-hmm. One is uncertainty reduction theory, which is that uh, our desire is always to reduce uncertainty in any situation, especially when, for example, we talk with a stranger. Our goal is to learn more about that stranger so that we can figure out quickly, like, am I comfortable with this person? Do I need to leave? Is it worth it? That sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I talk about uh, this Gnarik effect, which mm-hmm. is uh, named after a researcher of the Soviet Union. And basically that something that is unresolved stays top of mind until it is resolved. And so mysteries unresolved stay in our mind. And it doesn't just have to be a book or a movie, but this could be used in marketing or this could be used in the storytelling of your product or your company. And so I talk about this in great effect. I interviewed Steven Soderbergh Mm. uh, in detail about like what kind of the pieces of a mystery are. And so I talk about like the four components, suspense, emotional buy-in, the plot twist and the cliffhanger. Mm. And you could incorporate that in for example, as an example, your advertising. They found that advertising where there is uncertainty throughout the ad uh, creates more attention and creates a more positive effect, like a positive opinion of the ad. You don't have to have like the ad end on a cliffhanger necessarily, but you need the ad to have some suspense in it, right? Mm-hmm. I talk about like uh, the Budweiser ad from a couple years ago where the puppy is like lost and like trying to find its way home and like the wolves are like surrounding it. And I talk about like how's it going to get out of it? You know it's not going to like they're not going to kill a puppy on <laughs> on on national television, but they are going. But you are curious how they're going to resolve mm-hmm. this thing in a thirty second clip, and you could provide that experience in any thirty second kind of experience, whether it's a pitch or whether it is an ad. All right, now we're kicking into the very last of the seven triggers, the acknowledgement trigger. Now, this one is one of the most powerful triggers of all. So let's get into this one. This is the most powerful of all the captivation triggers. This is the fact that we pay attention to and build relationships with the people and ideas that provide us recognition, validation, and empathy, specifically. So 
uh, each of these are a key pillar to the whole thing, which is uh, if something is recognizing me and something is validating my existence in some kind of way, I'm going to pay a lot more attention to it. I talk about everything from like – this is like part of where celebrity like culture comes from, right? Mm-hmm. Because we have this identity with certain artists and celebrities, and especially when they show that they care about their fans. It actually shows that they care about all of their fans, and we build this very powerful relationship with them. Even though it's a one-way relationship, mm-hmm. we feel like it's a two-way relationship. Um, and this kind of like relationship building is why you know uh, people become di- diehard fans of, mm-hmm. say – a Cardi B, mm-hmm. or why putting a Beyonce on a Lion King movie is going to make bank. Mm-hmm. Like these are all things that like build that acknowledgement. But this is also about like the kind of customer support that your team builds. This is about the kind of like uh, relationship you have with the brands that you shop with the most. And so that more personalization that you can provide, mm-hmm. the more powerful that acknowledgement becomes, and that relationship becomes. And suddenly it goes from like a like unknown relationship to a really deep one uh, very, very quickly. Uh, It's actually very similar to, I'm going to just say YouTubers, Mm. and they are very similar verticals in this kind of way. So uh, teenagers, they don't talk about big celebrity stars. They really do just talk about their favorite YouTubers. Like like on a... I I remember this. It's like a kid is like, are are you like a... uh, Are are you a Jake Pauler? Mm, Which is like... That that's like the opener. It's a thing, but it's also but this is also true of like a thought leader. Like there are people who are very dedicated to whether it is say like a bigger name like a Gary Vaynerchuk mm. or there or a more niche kind of name. You're very dedicated. You listen to that person. That person's providing advice, and they're like showing you a piece of their lives, mm-hmm. and they're providing like a back and forth, and they're in ideally engaging with you or showing that they're engaging with their audience mm-hmm. through social channels. Facebook, et cetera, they are acknowledging what you say. Like Gary does a very smart thing where he like does video answers to some of his, uh, not just his fans, but to his critics. Totally. And that work, like, like regardless of what you think of like him, he is a master at understanding his audience and attention and uh, responding back and being pretty mm-hmm. genuine about it. Totally. You don't have to like, not everyone's going to love it, mm-hmm. but the people who do really do love it. Yeah. So when you're building that kind of thought leadership, it's a lot of that. The more personalization in that response, in that back and forth, the better. It's almost like think a little bit like a YouTuber. Create content. Like a YouTuber success is – and I actually interviewed the YouTube team for mm-hmm. this. Create content really consistently. Put it out on a really consistent basis. Uh, really make it for a specific audience. Acknowledge them uh, through things like the comments and such like that. Mm-hmm. Thought leader, same thing. Mm-hmm. Consistent content. Really focus on a specific vertical and like really show your audience that you care by responding back, by answering them. Now with this golden nugget in particular, I have referenced this so many times over the length of this podcast. One of the things I love most is when you all reach out to me. When you in particular reach out to me and I respond back, if you connect with me on LinkedIn or Twitter, Facebook, you follow the Facebook page, you follow me on Instagram, and you say, hey Ryan, I found you through the Cut the Crap Show. Or you message me and you just tag me while you're listening. And for example, a lot of people tag me on their stories and they say, hey, listening to the show, I love that. And I will always respond back. Email, social media, text message, doesn't matter. In fact, I have a couple meetings already set up with two of you who are probably listening right now this week to talk about your business. So that, that to me is one of the most important things, acknowledgement. When I acknowledge you, number one, I'm grateful. 
so grateful that you reach out. I'm so grateful that you follow the show, and I'm grateful that you reach out to me. So again, this is another call to action for all of you. Reach out to me. Follow me online if you haven't done it yet. I look forward to having a conversation with you in the future, that's for sure. But that, my friends, that is the show this week. That was Captivology, the science of capturing people's attention by Ben Parr. And yes, while capturing people's attention does play very well to the strengths of marketers, I do believe that everybody, everybody needs to understand how to capture people's attention. It's so important today. Whether you're doing an interview, ever doing a speech, if you're talking with your peers, for example, if you're networking, you want to capture people's attention. So important. But in any case, my friends, if you love this episode, then again, my call to action for you, of course, reach out to me, connect with me online. But please, if you're listening on your iPhone, your iPad, whatever, iTunes, Apple Podcasts, do me a favor, give this a quick five star. It would mean a whole hell of a lot to me. And I just would thank you in advance for doing that. But my friends, that's this week's show. So again, thank you so much to all of you for tuning in again. Your attention, I say it all the time, but I'm going to say it again. It has a little bit more relevance today. It means a lot to me. So thank you so much for making me a part of your day and uh, for continuing to be such a loyal listener to the show. Thank you so much. And I'll catch you back here next week when I have a brand new book, brand new Golden Nuggets, an interview with an author. And of course, every single week, you know what I'm doing. I'm trying to save you a little bit of time and bring you some information that can spark real change in your life. Have a fantastic, productive, inspired week. I love you all. If you can keep your head when all about you are losing theirs and blaming it on you. If you can trust yourself when all men doubt you, but make allowance for their doubting too. If you can wait and not be tired by waiting or being lied about don't deal in lies or being hated don't give way to hating and yet don't look too good nor talk too wise if you can dream and not make dreams your master if you can think and not make thoughts your aim if you can meet triumph and disaster and treat those two imposters just the same If you can bear to hear the truth you've spoken, twisted by knaves to make a trap for fools, or watch the things you gave your life to broken, and stoop and build them up with worn-out tools. If you can make one heap of all your winnings and risk it on one turn of pitch and toss and lose and start again at your beginnings and never breathe a word about your loss. If you can force your heart and nerve and sinew to serve your turn long after they are gone and so hold on when there is nothing in you except the will which says to them, hold on. If you can talk with crowds and keep your virtue, or walk with kings nor lose the common touch, if neither foes nor loving friends can hurt you, if all men count with you but none too much, if you can fill the unforgiving minute with 60 seconds worth of distance run. Yours is the earth and everything that's in it. And which is more, 
You'll be a man, my son. There's all kinds of different ways to break. You can break physically, you can break mentally, you can break your heart, you can break your spirit, and none of those are fun. And all of those are gonna leave a mark. But the mark that they leave can be the mark of victory or can be the mark of defeat. Because every time you break, and in every way that you break, while it's a chance, it's definitely a chance for you to give up and for you to just to fall apart. But there's also opportunity. There's opportunity to get stronger and get smarter and get faster and get tougher and get more stable and get more resilient and get better. When you break, you have the opportunity to show the world the whole world what you are really made of so so if you break if if you break the fight isn't over in fact if you break the fight is just beginning And as you crawl up and out of that dismal and wretched place, covered, and you're covered in blood and sweat and dirt and filth as you rise above what you were, and as you take the form of of who you are supposed to be, You will see that in the very act of standing up, in the very act of fighting on, you will become and you will remain.